0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the, AC, the <laughs> ACR, the ULAR 2023 Day 4 Recap. As you know, we uh, get together at the end of the day and talk about all the things that we thought were exciting, mind-blowing, head-scratching. This is where we really figure out what we really learned in the last day. I'm joined by two great friends. Uh, we're going to introduce ourselves. I'm Jack Kush, Dallas, Texas. David? David Liu, Melbourne, Australia. And Bella.
1: Bella Mehta uh, from New York, US.
0: Okay. So the protocol's simple. We're just going to go around the horn, give you our favorites, um, that we're going to do a synopsis and then a little discussion about what it all means. But Bella, why don't we start with you?
1: So you said Bella? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So I guess uh, one of the things that uh, I was very happy and excited about was the new SGI and Stills disease, um, you know, pediatric and adult uh, recommendations that came out of EULA today. Um, One of the big ones was that they said that both of them, uh, SGI and Stills are now uh, the same disease spectrum. Uh, We've been talking about it in the Stills community for a while, but now they say that the, the the name that is acceptable is just Stills disease. They did talk about diagnosis, treatment, and complications uh, too, um, but um, some of the things, um, you know, even the age of SGIA, less than 16 is SGI and more than 16 is adult onset. It was sort of arbitrary and they got that out. Um, they did note that age does somewhat matter. So you know, less than 18 months, uh, patients uh, do present with severe manifestations, including MAS. Um, they they you know they do they say that MAS should be detected promptly, treated early. Um, but one other big change was um that you know most of the criteria for uh, stills do talk about arthritis, but um and while arthritis is there in most of the patients, it's not necessary to make the diagnosis. And they were trying to emphasize that patients can present in many other ways. Um they did. of talk about the research agenda going forward. So, um, you know, there's so many criteria, uh, some for children, some for adults. Yamaguchi is something that crosses over between uh, kids and adults, but we do need some more sort of succinct standard criteria. the other thing was IL-18 levels. Um, IL-18 levels. There's a lot of talk about them. There's new drugs in the pipeline for them. Um, uh, they do say that if, if 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 you have it, you should try and uh, get them tested. But I know it's not available everywhere. Even the S100 proteins not available everywhere. But they did put them down on the criteria. As IL-18. I I, I sometimes get to <laughs> send them and and can get. The, the patient's done, but S100, I, I don't think I've used it in clinical practice. Maybe some of you have. Um, Again, um, I, I think treat-to-target was something that they emphasized, uh, trying to minimize glucocorticoid use. Um uh, The two other things that they do say in terms of treatment was IL, IL-1 and IL-6 agents, we all know they do work. They put it in the guidelines. They say they need to be prioritized. So, um, And they did talk about evidence of the window of opportunity. So between um, the first three to six months, you should try and get the patients in a clinically inactive disease, and by six months in remission, if possible. Uh, And again, remission is defined of a clinically inactive disease for at least three months. and and one of the things I think we all need to know a little bit more about is lung disease in SGIA. Maybe SGIA has some more evidence than um, adult stress disease. We really don't know what's happening there. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, they, they did say that even though there was a study on the DRB-115, uh, probably implying that there's some medications that can do this. They say that at this point, even if patients have SGIA lung disease, uh, do not withdraw IL-1 or IL-6 drugs. Um, uh, you know, again, anakinra, cyclosporin, interferon gamma should be the therapies for MAS uh, on top of the um, you know Still's disease uh, therapies. Um, I think this was the major summary uh, for from the guidelines. I'm just excited that finally they are like bringing together. They have a research agenda and bringing the the one name Still's disease, so that we can all work together uh, for this disease.
0: So, David, we're gonna geek you out because if Bella and I could talk about Still's disease forever. <laughs> you know, we're really into it. I'll say three things about this. One, um, as Bella said priority is starting an IL-1 and IL-6 inhibitor. They should be used first line. Yeah, you can use a non-steroidal and a steroid, but really it's an IL-1 and IL-6 inhibitor. They have to be used first line. And this is an agreement with the 2022 just published uh, ACR guidelines on treating systemic JIA. The second thing is they say you, which I really like this and it's novel. They can facilitate the diagnosis by looking for three things. I always say you can't really talk about Stills unless you have the triad of high fever, the Stills, rash, and polyarthritis. And Del Bell is right, that the arthritis may take a while in some patients. So what they did was say, you facilitate the diagnosis by having high fever graded in 39 centigrade, the Stills rash, and an inflammatory lab, high inflammation as exemplified by labs. I really, really like that. The thing I didn't like about the guidelines, and I'll allow it because I think that they really were great, as Bella said, is it reflected the the research agenda of the people at the table. So, you know, honestly, talking, putting uh, IL-18 and S100 proteins in the guidelines is kind of nonsense, as is an overabundance of discussion about the lung disease, which is an incredibly rare, rare manifestation of a rare, rare, rare disease. And yes, if you're in that world, if you're a pediatric rheumatologist, you see a lot of patients, or you're an adult who sees a lot of patients, you're going to see occasional ones, but the average doc is not going to see this. You should think about lung disease because it is a new kind of hot topic. But I think, again, using that, the guidelines is not really a platform for one's research
2: interest. So that's, I think that's a failing of this. David, did you get to look at any of this? Well, I mean, I think the thing that struck me was, like you say, it's a very, very rare disease, and yet we we can't be affording to chop very, very rare diseases into two on the basis of an arbitrary line. And it was really pleasing to see that right up front. The other thing I noticed that there was no Cush criteria mentioned in the criteria review, <laughs> I it's that. pointing but, you know I think we're obliged from room now to mention that just to make <laughs> that point. maybe they're yeah. listening, maybe they're listening, maybe.
1: No, I, All I right. Think- i think those i mean i i do i do use aladin levels now and i think they do help there's a few labs which do it again we are specialized so you know not all centers have it but um yeah, i i think the lung disease maybe we are not detecting it because we're not looking for it they actually That's decrease right. the thresholds for ct right. scans i mean I haven't seen too many adults with it, but maybe I'm not screening enough or, you know, some people are coughing here and there and they're not telling me. So I, my, I don't my know. View
0: is, I'm sorry. I, my view is I, ha- I have seen it. I've seen it in three patients, but I've seen a ton of patients. Um, and my, ex- my experience is that it's mainly pulmonary artery hypertension related to IL-1 use, IL-1 inhibitor use. So I would stop the IL-1 inhibitor, especially if they develop pulmonary artery hypertension. I think there's an association there, but it's rare. It's unexplained. And as they say, the, the lung disease has many different favors, like, uh, faces. It can be pulmonary, um, uh, what's it, alveolar proteinosis. It can be uh, some ILDs. I mean, it's not really one single clear cut um, lung diagnosis that's being seen. But I think you're right, Bell. I think we should be
2: looking for it. Okay, David, what's your what's your favorite from today? I think you can't go past. Uh, possibly the star of the late breaking abstracts. Um, one of the ones which set off the most um, chatter in the audience, uh, which is LB0001, uh, uh, which is uh, basically a head to head between tofacitinib and then uh, the compound, which is otherwise, which will hopefully for- soon be formally known as TLL018, which is what is that? Is that? Um, that's a JAK1. TIC2 inhibitor. So not just, just taking beyond the JAK1 and adding a bit of tick 2 um, It's quite selective for both of those. But they all claim to be quite selective. This is a phase 2A. Um, saw phase, uh, we have seen earlier data from the US, this was a phase 2A in China, 101 rheumatoid arthritis patients. A lot of them had had refractory disease. Um, as a 2A would go, this is a dose finding thing. But I think the thing that was really spectacular about this is that we saw in some of these refractory patients responses far above and beyond what we saw for with some of the doses of this new compound and I mean um, I think there's an inherent level of skepticism I think there are a lot of reasons why um, we might uh, want to look at these data closely I can't wait to read the paper when it comes out but anything that's kind of potentially doing a lot more for difficult to treat patients that's something I think we should you know allow ourselves to get a little bit excited about and uh um we'll hopefully see some later phase data um coming soon um, yeah, it yeah.
0: was it was hot right They had a lot of questions you know you know people at the microphone saying, really, how did you get a c r twenties forties fifties seventies that high? It's never been seen before and and so either they've hit on something here by being in um an equi equal jack tick two inhibitor which is uh, different than anything that's out there. Maybe maybe that's the magic sauce here. Um, um, I can't help but say the thing I'm not supposed to say because it's regionally insensitive, and that is this is from China. And, you know, there are, there are some Chinese studies on, um, on the teletacicept, and that data looks incredible in lupus and in Sjogren's syndrome, when, honestly... Studies in lupus and Sjogren's are not supposed to look incredible. And so, again, the proof is going to be in the publications, you know, when when they've been out there and when they've been to peer review. So I'm urging the authors, please put it out there because the world is desperate to not just talk about the buzz from the meeting, but talk about how great the paper was and
2: where this retreatment's going to go. So and I think that a lot of people, I mean, you could sense the skepticism in the room because the results were so. I mean, ACR fifty of seventy percent at right. week twelve. I mean, I, maybe I'm just getting a little bit excited for no reason. I'm gonna get have my heart broken by the phase two B or the phase three or when I see the paper. But or maybe you know,
1: there's like going. some crazy adverse effect. I don't know. I'm skeptical. Well,
2: the I mean, the, the short term safety. I mean, I think to really, I didn't mention that the short term safety looked the same as TOFA. So, and I mean, we know TIC2 seems to be have a very good safety profile when it's um, in isolation to cravacitinib. So I think there's all sorts of, I think we are used to this idea that, you know, there's no, um, there's no free lunch and that you have to, you know, work hard in terms of a safety cost in order to get efficacy outcomes, especially, you know, with, when you're talking about a dose finding, but maybe that's not the case here. You know, you've got to live with a little hope in life. Yeah, no, I, 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 think it was really a highlight
0: of that late breaking, uh, abstract session. And actually, so I was in that session as well. And, and I like the, uh, LB002. This is the, um, randomized, uh, uh, actually two control trials of SEL-12, which is a, a new novel compound being used to treat gout. It's, it's a, a peg, uh, pegadricase. case, it's SEL 37. Uh, this is a, a pegylated ura case that is maybe more immunogenic, and it's usually the peg part that's immunogenic than our, our current uh, peglotic case that's out there. Um, and anyway, it's combined with or given with a um, nanoparticle of uh, rapamycin to reduce the immunogenicity, and the two together, the SEL 37, the peg peg. peg uh and the rapamycin, SEL-110. It's combined as called SEL-212. Uh, and anyway, the, it looked good in clinical trials with the primary endpoint being that of um, lowering the, the uric acid levels to less than six. It was very good. Uh, they had these two studies called Dissolve-1, Dissolve-2. Uh, the immunogenicity on this was very low and and... Again, nothing, no big red flag signals are seen there. Um, The groups were, you know, pretty bad as evidenced by, you know, pretty high uh, rates of TOFI uh, in the patients who were treated. Uh, In the two studies, the Dissolve-1 looked like it had about a little more than 100 patients, and the Dissolve-2, the global study, had uh, about 150 patients or so. So, again, all kind of positive data. And, uh, you know, being able to lower to your primary endpoint uh, was seen at about 50%, 40 to 50% uh, on the drug at two different doses versus less than 10% on the placebo. So this is a winner from this standpoint, but they're going to have to do a really large phase three going forward. But I think it's exciting that we have another product, especially for patients with really difficult and hard to treat uh, refractory, aka topaceous gout. So uh, that was one of my highlights for the day, I,
1: David. You I mean, were I, you were there? Yes, yeah, oh, okay. I, I saw some of the data. Sorry, David, you were saying something. Yeah, no, you go, you go. That's yeah. fine. So I I think, but there was a, a subset of patients who didn't respond at all, right? And that's what was you know that's the and then fifty percent response rate in a in a you know, in a refractory. I mean, it's it's good, but I'm again I'm a skeptic. That's what. I'm,
0: well, again, the the. First off, the endpoint um, measure is kind of a goofy one, if you really think about it. I mean, they, that it lowers to a uric acid of less than six. Um, you're right. I think that's a low-hanging low, low hanging fruit. And why is... But then again, for Pegloticase, that's the number that they came up with was 40%. Yeah. And so this was higher than that was seen in Pegloticase, but not a whole lot higher. And why aren't they getting... I mean, the, the real proof... Of efficacy is going to be six months down the line. What's the tender joint count, swollen joint count, and the nodule count, and 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 tofacious load that the person's carrying? When you can quantify that, now you know you got you got a good drug. Now, getting from enrollment to that six month time point is kind of painful and difficult, and and but yeah, I don't know what the um, what it is about these drugs that you only are getting. 15, maybe no more than 60% of patients responding. Gout's pretty difficult to treat. And these are difficult gout patients. What are we going to do with the rest?
2: Well, and I mean that's it. I think everyone pretends that gout's a simple thing to that we should be able to just treat all gout um easily. But I think the fact that is that, you know, these biochem once you get the biochemical changes between that and getting actual clinical benefit for the patients in clinic, there are a lot of steps in between that we're yet to master. I just really want to say though. What a great study name. Dissolve. I mean, that those guys are earning their money in terms of study naming. I love that. That's
0: yeah, that's that's pharma marketing for you right there. That's what they're making their they're, they're making their worth right there. All right, let's go to the second round. Um, David, why don't you begin with this one? What do you what do you like as your as your second?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we I think uh, the recommendation session, there were obviously a lot of really important recommendations that came out. I think one of the ones that was worthwhile was really the lupus. Um, the uh well i think psa ones were really interesting um but i'll leave that for a later discussion I'll, I'll give you a one-liner on the psa one the one-liner is from
0: from the maker of grappa and the leader of grappa philip me said um he could sum up the uh ULAR guidelines to welcome to grappa guidelines meaning like they're finally catching up to grappa guidelines so that might be a little
2: teaser for the audience but okay what was your other choice well, I thought that um, the lupus guidelines, or the lupus recommendations are also really um, useful to look at. I mean, I, I think it made me realise how far we've come in lupus since the last recommendations that come through. We've had a better appreciation now through ll and other work to understand the impact of the, the impact of, of glucocorticoids, of steroids in lupus patients, that are, and that really we shouldn't be tolerating the kind of doses that we had thought acceptable beforehand. We've got more drugs to market now. Um, you know, and basically, we've started to appreciate that maybe those biologic agents really, in the, you know, it will be targeted agents, maybe come to if that comes through, should be, should Come at a much earlier stage than we had done previously. That should be entertained. And I think that combo therapies, when we're talking about CNIs, vocal and things like this, that basically we need to be, and, and map that we should be thinking about these. We've, we've seen combo studies um, that we hadn't seen in the last recommendations, and now they have got to work their way into the recommendations as well. So, really, the fact that the recommendations talk about lower doses of glucocorticoids being tolerable. So, we're talking uh, now, instead of before, from seven and a half from now we're talking five we talk about using um considering um in lupus having those biologic agents up front not going through a cycle of microphenolite and azathioprine but going straight to those and then where appropriate where and where the where the um literature lines up the combinations with belimumab bilim, or the combinations with um cni of so i think that's um i think that's re- it was uh, really nice to actually reflect on the progress that we've made in systemic lupus in the last few years well what do you think of them
1: i think i mean again they, they they couldn't say which one to use when right like they didn't have a chart i think eventually in the next guidelines there will be but uh, i think things like things that we know should have been in the guidelines they're finally coming in like right. um, there's enough data out there about belimumab and how it's using. I mean, we've all been using it for extra-renal manifestations. They just put that in um, and things like that. Yeah, I, I think it was important uh, to talk about glucocorticoids. And the one thing that I took away saying that nephrologists on the, com- on the committee were basically saying you don't even need steroids to, you know, a glucocorticoid-free remission if you can. Uh, so they are like, go up front on the biologics, you know, push hard so that you may not need um, steroids at all.
0: So I want to ask the two of you a question about these guidelines. I I like them because they um, appropriately put drugs like azathioprine, mycophenolate in their right place, uh, hydroxychloroquine as well. They um, aggressively integrated the new biologics and new therapies. So that they're in many of these statements and prominently displayed, and that seems to be refreshing and fair and whatnot. But at the same time, my question has to do with the process by which you get to guidelines and the grade procedure of scoring the literature. The only people who really belong in guidelines are pharma-sponsored clinical trials that will meet grade definitions well-done clinical trials, appropriately powered, that give you a strong, you know, A-type recommendation. So are, are the more expensive, newer therapies overrepresented or unfairly represented in, this, um, in these guidelines? Uh, and, it's, and it's not just the ULR guidelines that do this. Obviously, ACR is guilty of this or anybody that does uh, newer guidelines. But how do you weigh um, the fact that there is a biased towards those who actually do the work and pay for, you know, the heavy lifting to get these drugs approved.
2: I mean, I think usually I would um, I'd always be a little sceptical about the that kind of aggressive incorporation. But then it made me reflect. I mean, we've had bilimumab in the New England Journal. We had voclosporin in the Lancet. We had anifrolumab in the New England Journal. Well, a disease that like lupus, which doesn't usually see, and there's, you know, there's obviously plenty more to come. A disease that, like lupus that doesn't necessarily always see this kind of limelight has actually had a really good couple of years so I think it's nevertheless uh, incumbent on the it behooves th- these rec- these um, committees to really try and find the right equipoise to make sure that we don't neglect the important stuff and so I mean steroids was in there as well and I think that's you know important to not take our focus off the um that kind of stuff which isn't in the pharma trials that isn't kind of and they will never have the same kind of level of um, evidence that uh, other other new drugs might have but at the same time is really in, is critical to our everyday practice really critical of our everyday practice yeah,
0: and this committee did a good job of for instance even leaning against negative evidence by putting rituximab in for the treatment for instance of aiha or itp uh, where we know it works um, and it's just that you're never going to see great clinical trials in that particular area, even though it didn't do well in a lupus trial. And that's a, another argument that we're not going to get into. Bella, what, again, do you have a, a, a any comment?
1: I think You know, when we're talking about guidelines, we're talking about guideline updates. So when we talk about updates, we're talking about the new drugs much more. But like this, they do talk hydroxychloroquine is what you do for like skin manifestation. They do talk about it. But when we're talking about the updates, I think the newer drugs get more highlighted. And and honestly, in clinical practice, or even in at least in the US, like you're not going to get these drugs up front, like it take a while for the insurance companies to catch up. And who knows? Like we're still going to do some of those things, just that we have options for patients who need it. I think that's right. what the guidelines tell me. Like these guidelines don't make me change suddenly my clinical practice <laughs> or, or the insurances don't let me change it in any case.
0: All right. So, Bill, I'm going to give you the hardest task of the day and give us a uh, a report on the newest drug that you can't pronounce. <laughs>
1: oh. oh, so it's called Dazodalibep oh i got it right <laughs> so this was uh, abstract late breaking abstract lb0003 um, and it's a cd40 antagonist for adult on se- adult uh, sjogren syndrome patients um, pretty well balanced study it was a double blind placebo control study with crossover um, about 100 patients and these patients have had like pretty severe um, symptoms um the you know, the ESPRI or the uh, eula Shogun syndrome patient reported index as well as the eula Shogun syndrome disease activity index. Um, uh, those were the outcomes that they looked at. Um, again, a randomized one-to-one. Um, they, um, I think the the patients did achieve, and this was something that was not on the radar. So it was uh, a refreshing thing to see that the patients did um, uh, pretty well, pretty um, well. Uh, 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 you know, not only in terms of their um, primary complaints of sika and shograns, but also in uh, other sort of secondary uh, measures like fatigue. Um, The only problem I think was that 75 patients had some sort of adverse event. They say it was like minor or things were like again the devil will be in the detail when the actual publication comes out especially with these late breeding and breaking abstracts so you you see them you're very excited but again i, I guess i'm a skeptic so i want to see the full data but i i think it shows um, some promise in schogrens
0: yeah i thought i thought it was very well done i think it it tried to incorporate all the newer measures the s the sdi the esprit the cris you know um, and then standard measures and it looked like it won fairly well and the biology seems to work you know i mean you know we're, we're going after something that makes sense here again my greatest concern in in shogun's trials is um they always include patients who have fibromyalgia which tends to really taint um a lot of the things so like, when you see a lot of adverse events is that is that a shogun's thing or is that a fibromyalgia thing or is that a drug thing and I don't think you can know until you remove fibromyalgia from the equation. And there are a lot of patients with very bad Sjogren's who don't have fibromyalgia, but that, that tends to taint some of the data. But I think this is encouraging, and so I, I, I expect it to go forward.
2: Absolutely. All right, so
0: my last one is a poster from the Mayo Clinic, POS 0309, about the use of steroids um, in the Mayo Clinic population when they did um, two different eras, they did, starting in 1999, they did a nine year, a nine year, 400 patient cohort. And then in 2009, they did another nine year, roughly 400 patient cohort. And they looked at steroid use. And what they found was, um, and I was there, I think they were specifically trying to do um, a, a later one. So that would have been 2009, to 2018 or so, um, a later one to say, all right, in the later era, we have a lot of new drugs, right? And we have a lot of aggressive drugs. And maybe if we're doing that, maybe we shouldn't be on using steroids so much. And unfortunately, what they showed was that in starting on, uh, after a new diagnosis uh, of RA, like 68% in the first era started steroids. But in the second era, it was like 72%. Um, both groups um, went off of steroids, but unfortunately, at the end of nine years, there's still 30 plus percent of patients who are still on steroids, regardless whether you're in a biologic rich era or a biologic medium era, so to speak, or or starting era. Uh, But maybe more worrisome was the elderly. The elderly were actually more likely to be started on steroids, and they were also less likely to be stopped. So they really stood out. And of course, the elderly, I mean, they're the worst people to give steroids to. They were also, the elderly were less likely to get DMART therapy and they were more likely to have comorbidities, but yet we still relying on steroids. Their point was, uh, and then they, they, they was it? Gender and um, race did not matter here. Uh, if you were a smoker, you were less likely to get off steroids. That kind of goes along with smoking and disease activity as well. Um, but they said that um, uh, these, this real-world evidence sort of is at odds with existing guidelines. And the guidelines, whether it's ULR permissive, or ACR, draconian, they all say the same thing. You can use them if you must, but please get off of them. Um, I, my My line these days is you don't write a prescription for prednisone unless it has an expiration date. Otherwise, you're throwing you know, the steroids around like they're cheap and
2: safe when in fact they are cheap, but they're not safe. I mean, there's just so much variation of care, I think, with these. And I think there was actually a a poster from the Mayo talking about the differences in variation of care there are patients based on how far away they lived from the Mayo Clinic. And I think it's a really kind of honest discussion thinking about um, knowing that we 've got to try and and do better to try and deliver consistent care and steroids is is i think the thin end of the wedge with that kind of stuff it 's really easy to slip away I think we know that steroids are justified sometimes trying to get patients off them that 's a very a, a much uh well it 's a harder thing in practice than we then i think i'd like to pretend it is um so The more that we can try and deliver that consistency and practice for all of our patients, I think the better our outcomes will be. And this is a really important reminder of that. Yeah,
0: I almost want to challenge each each of you as experts and other experts to tell me, you know, give me four slides in your next talk on disease XYZ about how you can manage disease XYZ without steroids. And I think that would be a real uh, tough assignment for all of us.
2: Oh, I,
1: mean, I mean it's the practicality of it right like it's it's not about yes even if we come up with a strategy and a flowchart, when the patient comes in you <laughs> you need to treat them now so that they are compliant and like you know they they can function sometimes
0: so you know, the problem with that and I, I get it it's it's humane it's it's also easy it is the easy answer to the hardest clinical questions you face and therein lies a real um you know, slippery slope, a real conundrum um, and in which the patients lo- lose. I mean, our lives are certainly made easier by that. I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling with this myself and maybe I'll come up with a solution, but give me about 10 years. Um, I want to end with uh, a challenge to, the, to you both. Can you think of, because the meeting's over, can you think of a trend or something that you saw that you either liked or didn't like? I'll, 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 well, I'll give you mine and then maybe you'll think of yours. The trend that I saw um, and it began at last ACR and continued here is a large number of studies that I call oral surveillance rebuttal studies, where they try to remanufacture data from data sets, registries, LTEs, um, meta-analyses that are modeled after the oral surveillance inclusion criteria. And they say, guess what? We don't see anything bad happening with um, the jack inhibitor. And of course, those studies cannot, by their admission, by their design, match the validity of the well-done randomized controlled trial. So well, I'm just sort of wondering, why am I seeing so many of them? There were a lot of them here dealing with the cardiovascular outcomes and also the cancer outcomes. So that's, a, that's something I saw at this meeting. Bella, can you think of anything else that you saw as a trend?
1: I think I I mean again uh, it's my bias, but I'm seeing a lot more sort of artificial intelligence, machine learning yeah. all getting incorporated. Um, I mean maybe I'm reading all of those abstracts um, but but I think in the future um, again, this you know data's data getting recycled or whatever however you look at it. Uh, I think uh, a lot of our um, the next five years we'll see a lot more of those which will become standard practices. To analyze the data that we already collect, or we have in clinical trials, or registries, or whatnot.
0: Yeah, you're going to need to have a new degree. It's going to say Bella uh, Meta MD, comma Chat GPT 4, something like that. You know, going forward. I've
1: been obsessed with it. I've, I've, I've I actually did a, I, I sent a publication, which is, which I think is pretty good. It's in review, but. GPT is changing how we're doing things.
2: They do it. Right. And many others. So That's right. David, take us home. Well, I'm going to go with a meeting related thing. I I love the poster floor. That's for me the beating heart of the meeting. You have the interactions and all the bands are on there and you see people, but then you also have the opportunity to discuss um, in a very egalitarian way um, with the experts of the field, all of what's going on at, um, at a given moment in time. It was really nice to see the post floor actually really quite dynamic at this meeting. Although I think the thing we've got to figure out is are these e-posters on screens? I mean, they bug me to no end. And I mean, I can see the value. I can see that there's some theoretical value with them. I don't know what to do with them though. And then I guess the poster tours, which were done in a room, I guess one of the, cho- the benefits of e posters you can just beam it up on a screen. But they were done like a silent disco, and so you couldn't really have the interaction between the members of the actual poster tour. I feel like the best bit of the poster tour is the tête-à-tête between all the different members. So one day they'll find out, figure out how to do this all. But I'm just just happy that we've got a poster floor back in real life, and I'm looking forward to seeing that at ACR as well because that's my favorite part of the meeting.
0: Well, the, the uh, are gets credits for being very green and very environmentally. There were no poster boards, there were no papers, there were no it was those screens and ACR is gonna go back to the poster boards and the big paper rollouts and all that. So you'll get it back at ACR. Um David, I think uh there it, Ular was doing an experiment um looking at how men and women um handle those video screens looking for their posters, and they're gonna be able to show that men are handicapped by not having a remote control. That's <laughs> what I'm thinking.
2: So. Uh, yeah, I just kept on tapping the side of the screen and it did nothing. <laughs> it's what are you going to do? You know, case in point, yeah. All right, you guys
0: did a fabulous job in covering the meeting. The audience, I know, appreciates your hard work. Um, get some rest, get back home. We'll uh, we'll be back on the air next week in Room Now. We're going to do our, our last day's report and publishing instead of on Saturday. We're going to do it on Monday. So watch for that. Uh, again, thanks a bunch.
2: Thanks. See
0: you in San Diego.
2: Yes.